last May. Will and Jada Pinkett, Will and Jada Pinkett came under fire last year and raised some eyebrows when a picture of their 13-year-old daughter sitting on a bed with a 20-year-old bare-chested man showed up on Instagram. The media com uh, controversy prompted some interviews and some opportunities for the couple to explain their parenting views and their techniques. They had four guidelines. Number one, teach independence. Number two, teach your daughter to own her own body. Number three, no punishment necessary. And number four, don't own your children. They said, and I quote, our concept is, as young as possible, give them as much control over their lives as possible. And the concept of punishment, our experience has been, it has a little too much of a negative quality. <laughs> Will and Jada Pinkett. Meanwhile, other celebrities are using a different technique. One that is becoming popular is known as RIE. You may have heard of that before. It is an acronym that stands for Resources in Infant Educarers. There are a number of popular books that support it. Notice the titles, Baby Knows Best, Respecting Babies, Elevating Child Care, A Guide to Respectful Parenting, Respecting No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame. All of those are promoting the Rye philosophy. And there's a long list of celebrities that are jumping on board with this one. All right, this is the one you may have heard. This is the one that doesn't use pacifiers or sippy cups or uh, high chairs. Okay, the idea is you stop treating children like children and treat them with dignity. Okay, now, this is also the one that says that you don't shush a crying baby because that is something babies are to do and you need to let them relieve their tension and you don't want to suppress any emotion. That would not be respectful, okay? Now, they also promote that the child is to be an active participant rather than a passive recipient when it comes to bathing and diapering and feeding and all those fun things that you do for a baby. Their method is known, they say they employ sensitive observation. The idea with Rye is to respect and trust in the baby to be able to do these things. Listen, to be able to be the initiator and explorer and a self-learner. Your primary role as a mother in their development is to trust, to trust the baby rather than, now listen, rather than teaching, instructing, or interrupting. You're to avoid those. Trust the baby. Okay, one more. This is another popular parenting practice. It is known as attachment parenting. And you've probably heard about this one. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people uh, uh, hold to this. This is the one that focuses on the nurturing bond that exists between mother and child. And this is the one that is proposing co-sleeping, where the baby sleeps with you in bed, and where the baby is to be in the constant presence of a parent. Now, this one, they also suggest the practice of positive discipline. Now, listen to what that involves. Parents are advised to distract redirect and guide even the youngest of babies and to model positive behavior. 
As parents, you are encouraged to work out a solution together with a child rather than spanking or simply imposing your will on children. Now, those are three different approaches. They're all a little different, but each of them have a common denominator. Did you see the theme running through some of those? First of all, they all presume that the child knows best and should be exercising independence. Each one presumes that the parent is to be a loving caretaker and caregiver for the child. Each one is presuming that the parent is to be supportive and to be there to offer advice. However, each of them also presume that parental authority is a negative thing. Now, our author brings up a very good point. He says that, um, we see in these examples, that nowadays we not only dislike being under authority, we don't like being authorities. Now, why is that? What is our attitude to be about authority? In particular, what is our attitude to be about being an authority to your children? That's where we're going today. We're going to be building on this, okay? Because you're going to hear a lot more about this in the weeks to come. But this morning, we want to take a look at two different things. We want to look at the basic principle of authority and how that works. And then we want to discuss how it will apply to us as mothers specifically, okay? Now, first thing I want to do, I uh, have given you a definition for authority on your handouts. Number one, authority means the right to rule or lead, and the right to be obeyed. Listen to how J. Hampton Keithley defines it. And by the way, I have this quote on your paper. He says, authority means the power to act, decide, command, and judge. It is the right to set policy. It means the responsibility and right to direct and cause another to follow directions. It means the responsibility and right to establish standards. Now, we've talked about this in the past. God is the ultimate authority. Now, why is that? Somebody tell me. We've talked about this. Why is he the ultimate authority? He's the creator. Absolutely. Because he is creator. And so we want to make that point number two. Point number two on your paper. All authority belongs to God because he is the creator of all things. We are not going to take the time to look up the verses on this because this is review. We've talked about this before. Okay, but God does the defining. Remember we said he defines our womanhood. Remember we said he defines our parenting. Okay, God is the ultimate authority. And by the way, because he is creator. And by the way, this is going to be one of the first things that you teach your babies. That God is creator and that he has made it all. When you're looking at the flowers and the birds and the bugs... You're going to be using that as an opportunity to put the spotlight on God. When their world starts to open up to these things, that's what you're going to be ready to do, to put God on display. All right, God's principle of authority is governing creation. Now, before we talk about the different kinds of authority, we want to address the question of what kind of ruler is God? What kind of authority is God? And for that, we do want to look up at a verse. If you would turn with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, okay, second book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus. 
Verse 34, we're going to start with verse 5. This is a scene between God and Moses. Exodus 34, starting at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What kind of ruler is God? Yes, yes. Number, number three on your papers. God is a righteous and benevolent ruler. He is good. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. All right, now listen. Part of that steadfast love and his goodness is that he hates sin and that he hates evil. He is righteous. So he is a righteous ruler. That means that all of the rule and the authority and power that he has over you is never going to be arbitrary. It will always be for good. Okay, and that brings us to our next point, which is really a consequence. It goes with our, our previous point, and that is number four. Authority is established by God for our benefit. Now, take a look at the first few things that you have on your paper. Because these are things that we want to be relaying to our children. God made you. God is the creator. He is the ultimate ruler. He has power and authority over us all. But he is a kind ruler. He is good. He can be trusted. Okay. Number five, when it comes to authority, there are two different ways that God exercises authority. And we want to just talk about this briefly. The first one is direct, right? This means that God is dealing directly with you through his word or through his spirit. Okay, that's direct. Second is delegated, delegated. Now, a delegate is someone who represents God's authority, Okay, a delegate represents God's authority. So God not only directs us personally, but he also directs us through his delegated authorities. Now here's the thing. Because the delegated authority is representing God, that means that the delegated authority must be obeyed. Okay? Because to be disrespectful to the delegated authority is to be disrespectful to the God whom it is representing. Okay, you got that? Now, what are the delegated authorities according to the Bible? Well, we're not going to take the time to go to all the various places in the Bible that speak of them. We're going to do the speed version, and that is I have them on your paper. Okay, the delegated authorities in our lives, government, workplace, think in terms of your boss, okay, and then church and family. Now, you, you might quickly think there and be wondering about what about a corrupt government? What about a corrupt boss? Okay, um, we're going to save that discussion for another time and another teacher, okay? But uh, 
today, we want to focus on the family. We're going to put our uh, focus on what the Bible has to say about the order and authority that is to be taking place in the home. And this is going to be a review. But let's turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. We have studied this in the past. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. Jump down to verse 33. Verse 33 says, However... Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, let's keep reading. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, this is one of several passages that you were supposed to read this week about the family and about the authority that is the order of the authority that is to exist in the home. On your paper, I have another little block. What is that order? First, father is the head. He's the head of the home. He is to be loving and nurturing the wife as Christ loved the church. Then you have mom. Remember, we've talked about her. She is to be voluntarily aligning herself behind her husband. Okay, mom is submitting to the headship of the husband. And then you have come to the children. And they are to honor and obey both mother and father. Okay, this is the authority structure that God has ordained for the home. And can I just tell you something? One of the best ways that you as moms can teach your children that God is a benevolent ruler and that his authority in our lives is for our good will be the way that you submit to your husbands. You see, you have a unique situation because, you see, your kids, they got front row seats to watch how this works out. They get to see what it's like to see a mom that's respecting and honoring a headship. They get to see what it's like to obey. You see, every time that you line up and respect your husband and submit to your husband, you have a chance to say to your children, God is a God that can be trusted. His ways are good. Watch me. Watch me as I submit to God by standing behind your father and submitting to him. When I was raising kids. I took being submissive very seriously. I wanted you to be able to ask my children, who's in charge at your house? And I wanted my kids to be able to say, my dad. And if you would have asked my children that question, they would have probably said, yes, my dad is in charge. Now, if you would have asked my children, is your mother happy with that arrangement? (laughs) Um, I'm not sure how they would answer. I fear they would have said no. 
Because while I was very busy trying to be a submissive wife, I was definitely relaying to them that, oh, this is such a chore. <laughs> you know, I'm being submissive to my husband. Do you see the sacrifice I'm making for you children? And, oh, Lord, you see the sacrifice? I clearly should be leading. You know, I just, I had, I, I, I had a very, I had a bad attitude on that one. And you know what? Wish I had a do-over. Wish I had a do-over because it would have been a chance to be able to say to my kids, God's rule is my delight. Now, can't go back. Can't go back, but I can have a renewing of my mind and I can determine to be obedient today and I can trust God to redeem all that stuff behind. Okay, but here's the thing. You girls, you don't have to live with regret. You can say to your kids, watch me, watch me, watch the way I submit to your father. Watch the way that I line up behind him because we are lining up under a God who is trustworthy. He can be trusted. His rule and his power and authority over our lives is good. Okay, now, number six on your paper. Women have unique opportunities to display the goodness of God's authority as we joyfully model submissive and respective behavior towards our husbands. You see, when you submit to your husband, when you are respectful to your husband, you put the spotlight on God. You show them God is worth following. All right, now, let's go back to that Ephesians passage because we've already seen that we are under authority, but we also see from this passage that we have authority, okay? We have authority as delegates. We are the delegated authorities. Now, watch at verse 6. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father. Now, that last part is taken right from the five, uh, fifth commandment. As moms, if God has given you children, he has given you the authority over them. So, next point. Number seven, parents are the God-ordained authority in the lives of children. You are the delegate acting on God's behalf. All right, now listen, you are not ruling over your own jurisdiction. You are ruling over God's. The, your children are your stewardship. And as one, as you're lined up under God, then you're going to turn and exercise authority over your children because you have to be obedient. You have to be obedient. That's why you require and exercise authority over your children. Okay, now, and remember how we've defined authority. We've said it is the right to rule, it is the right to lead, it is the right to be obeyed, it is the power to act, decide, command, and judge. It is the right to set policy. Now, will the fact that you are acting as God's delegate, will it affect the way you have authority over your children and the way you rule? Absolutely. It will define the way you act and rule over your children. Okay, now the author points out 
that as you begin to understand that you're acting as God's representative, it gives you confidence to act, it gives you a mandate to act. You are not exercising authority because you are bigger or because you are smarter or because you are older. You are exercising authority because you are the mother and you must obey God yourself. Now, the author also points out that most people are uncomfortable uncomfortable being authorities, and instead we like to take the role of advisor, okay? Which is certainly an example that we saw in those first, first ep, uh, examples. All right, the problem with this approach, according to the author, is that the child then begins to see himself as a valid decision maker. Now let me ask you, was your child born a valid decision maker? Okay, what did we say last week? What is your child born? Sinners. What did we remember what we learned last week? We said they were experts in what? <laughs> what were we, what were they experts in? Experts in what? Idolatry. Remember? They're born experts in idolatry. Not not uh, not decision makers. Okay. Next point, and this is from the book. Number eight. Children lack maturity, wisdom, and life experience and thrive under, gracious, under the gracious authority of parents. Okay, our children were born rebellious. They were born sinful. They were born needing instruction and correction. Okay, and those are two, two areas. Those are the two components that we want to think about that the author points out when it comes to authority. And we're going to make that our next point. Number nine. Our authority is exercised in two primary ways, instruction and correction. You have been given the authority so that you can properly instruct and teach and guide your children. You have also been given authority to correct your children. All right? We want to talk about both of these a little, but I want to start with instruction. You have been commanded to exercise authority over your children to teach them in the ways of the Lord. All right, now the author points out in some of the sermons that he has online that we are giving that authority away at a young age. And he, and he suggests that one of the ways that we're doing that is we're letting little children make choices and decisions for themselves rather than make them require to obeying ours. Now, uh, when I was raising kids, that was a very big deal. We were being told that, you know, it was very important to let our children make decisions at a young age. We were being told that it was all about self-esteem. We were also being told that um, if you wanted to diffuse and kind of help um, conflict, then give a choice. So say you got a little child, you're trying to get ready to go somewhere, he's not cooperating, he's not getting dressed, things are moving slowly. So as a parent, you say, okay, honey, do you, do you want to wear the red shirt or the blue shirt? Okay, and, and he says, okay, blue shirt. And then because we were concerned about their self-esteem, we would go, very good, blue shirt. Oh, that's a very good choice. You're going to look wonderful in that. Okay, okay, quickly, put it on. Okay, he puts it on, and then there you go. And it was supposed to be a way of practicing, making good decision-making, and helping their self-esteem, and all of those things. Now, they were getting practice at it. Our author begs to differ. 
He claims that that teaches the child that the child is the decision maker and mom is just there to help offer up suggestions and options. Point number 10, and this too is from the book. Preliminary to being good at making decisions is the need for the child to be under authority. We will be talking about this at length when we hit chapter 11. We will be talking about how this plays out as your children grow and get, and get older. But for now, consider what the author says, uh, and I quote, children will learn to be good decision makers as they observe faithful parents modeling and instructing wise direction and decision making on their behalf. Okay, do you see what he's saying? He's saying first you concentrate on obedience. You teach them obedience, and then good decision-making, wise decision-making will follow. Okay, he also says this. Your task in dealing with young children is to determine what is best for your child and direct him into that path in kind and gracious ways. You must provide direction. You're going to do it kind and gracious. I um, spent some years, to, uh, years ago as an Awana leader. I have spent years uh, helping with youth. And one of the things that you will commonly hear at some point goes something like this. Oh, yeah, we don't come to Awana. You know, little Johnny just doesn't like it. Um, we just can't get him interested, so we don't come. Or you might hear them say, um, oh, yeah, little Susie, she, she doesn't like coming on Wednesdays. You know, she's got, she's got piano on Monday and soccer on Tuesday and Thursday. So we've said, honey, you can decide for yourself what you want to do on Wednesday. Or sometimes I hear good things like, our kids love this church. They love Awana. They love youth group. You know, we've always said we would never go to a church unless our kids approved. We've decided, you know, our kids can, will decide whether they like it or not and whether they're happy. All right, now what are they doing, all of them? What are they doing? They have handed over the authority as a parent to instruct to a child. Instead of being a parent and deciding what is best for the child and what that child should do, they are handing it over to someone who is lacking in wisdom, lacking in maturity, lacking in life experience. Now, uh, I am not, by the way, I am, I am all for getting to the bottom of something if a child does not want to participate because it could be that there are things that need addressed. Okay, I'm talking about just a general mentality that we need to have as parents, that we are delegating and teaching and directing our children as God's representative. Okay. All right. The next aspect of authority that we want to talk about has to do with discipline. All right. This is another thing that we'll be talking more about in the future. Today, we primarily want to understand our role in discipline as agents of God's authority, okay? Before we can ever have a good discussion on discipline, we've got to understand our role as agents of God. Okay, if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and... Um, we're going to be seeing a lot of this passage. We'll be back here. Let me start uh, Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, 
Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, for today, we want to use this passage to um, look at something that the uh, author talks about. He discusses two types of discipline. He talks about, and this is number 11 on your paper. Number 11, two types of discipline, punitive and corrective. Punitive and corrective. Now, with punitive, correction orbits around the parent and how the parent was offended. Okay, the child does something. It was irritating. It was annoying. It was inconveniencing. It was embarrassing. Okay, and so then the the parent uh, takes some form of disciplinary action. Usually Usually this comes from they're angry or maybe they're seeking revenge in some way. And that's what's motivating them. All right, now, this kind of discipline, if this is the stuff that Will, Smith, that Will Smith was talking about, then he's right. This is negative. This is self-serving type of uh, punishment. And so we do not want our discipline to be centered around ourselves. Instead, we want it to be corrective discipline. Now, with corrective discipline, that orbits around God. God is the one that has been offended. And your goal with uh, corrective discipline, it's designed to move a child who has disobeyed. We want to get him back to the path of obedience. Okay, this type of discipline is restorative. Okay, it's corrective. Okay, bring him back into obedience. Now, if we are going to act as God's agent, then we're going to be orbiting our correction around God. All right, and notice it's not ourselves. And look at what verse 6 calls it. Verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. When you're acting as an agent of God, okay, and your discipline is corrective, and, and your purpose is to bring a child that is disobeyed and bring him back into obedience. You know what that is? The Bible says that's an expression of love that you have for your child. When Grant was in second grade, Shortly after the school year started, um, the teacher approached me one day and told me that she was having some behavior problems with him. And um, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't pay much attention to what she said. I had uh, just had a baby. My husband had uh, just been transferred, so he was uh, not living with us. He was in a different state, and so I was a little distracted. And... Uh, but, but that, wasn't, that wasn't the main reason. You see, this teacher did not have a great reputation in the school. The first two teachers 
uh, had these wonderful reputations. People were always talking about how great they were. They walked on water. They could just perform magic with children. And uh, it was a Christian school, but I'm just saying it, they were, they were, uh, they were, they were supposed to be very good at bringing the best out of your children. And and they had control of their class, and they were kind of fun and and made learning fun. Well, this teacher, um, she was older. People were saying things like that, you know, she's a little cranky, or she, um, she didn't have control over her class. And, and, and kind of the, the idea was, um, you just want to get through that year. And then, you know, you got something better on the other end into third and fourth grade or whatever. So as she's approaching me about my son and kind of telling me some things that she's seeing in him, um, I, I'm, I'm lo- I looked down on her. And I thought, um, mm, you know what, this is, this, is what the, this is what I've been hearing. You, are, uh, you don't have control of your class. I didn't say it, I'm thinking it. You, know, you don't have control of your class, and you're cranky, and this is really about you. This isn't about my kid. So I dismissed it. I, I, did, not, uh, I, d- I did not do anything about it. Probably about, um, oh, I don't know, maybe a good six weeks later, it was time for Grandparents' Day. And Grandparents' Day, all the grandmothers and grandparents come in and they observe the classroom and it's a big day and all the grandparents sit down with the students and they have a luncheon together. And so my parents went and um, they came home and I went over to see my uh, parents and I asked my dad, you know, how'd it go? And he went, "Um, uh, not good. (laughs) I I said, oh? And he began to explain to me some of the things that Grant had done that day. And do you know what? They were lining up with all the stuff that teacher had told me. She had tried to warn me, and I didn't pay attention to her. And so now, all those things that he did was done in front of a larger audience. <laughs> you know, my parents were there. My great, the great-grandmas were there. Peers of my in-laws were there. Many of those people sitting in that room I went to church with. So I, I, was, I was humiliated. One of the things he did was they had the cafeteria all set up for the, like a banquet and all the seats were in place. And each place setting had a piece of pie. And on top of the pie was a dollop of Cool Whip. And as they were entering the room, my son broke away from my parents to go to his seat and just took his fingers and just went. (laughs) All the outward. It was a proud moment for my parents. (laughs) Now, I was horrified. I was horrified. This was not a baby that didn't know better. This was a a seven-and-a-half-year-old child that knew plenty good he wasn't supposed to do that. I went home and wrote a letter to the teacher apologizing, apologizing for his behavior, apologizing for failing to do anything about this when she first approached me. And oh, I was so convicted. I was very convicted of my pride. I was very convicted of my arrogance because that's what it was and foolishness, just foolishness. And then Grant came home, (laughs) and we had a little talk. You know, I talked about the things that had happened that day. I talked about some of the things that the teacher had told me about. 
And then I took him to Romans, Romans 13. Romans 13 says this, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. They who have opposed will receive condemnation on themselves. I attempted to explain to him what this means, that God has placed authorities in his life, and he must obey them. To disobey the authorities in his life is to oppose God and to bring condemnation onto himself. And then I attempted to make him understand that his second grade teacher was, in fact, his authority and that he had to obey her. If he was to be in obedience to God, then he would have to obey the second grade teacher. That meant that when he was disruptive to her, when he did not listen to her, when he talked, when she was talking, all of those things were indicating that he was disrespecting the very authority that God had placed over him. He was disrespecting God. We uh, agreed that he would write out that verse and that he would um, write his teacher an apology, apologizing for his behavior and explaining to her what he has learned, that she is the authority that is to be over him, and that if he was to be obedient to God, he was going to have to obey her. Now, we made uh, some major changes in our home. And one of the things that we said at the very early on is, um, okay, listen, here's the deal. I don't want the teacher to come back and say to me, "Uh, oh yeah, things are a little better, Uh uh-uh. I said, I want the teacher to come back and say, things have completely changed. Now he is obeying me. Now he is respecting me. Yeah, that's, that's where we're going. Um, like I said, we made major changes in the home, and about six weeks later, uh, we sold our house. We were preparing to leave. The class had a little going-away party for him, and I went in to help him get all of his stuff. And the teacher pulled me aside and said, listen, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. She says, because he is completely different. And I said, well, you, you know, we've made some changes. To be honest with you, it's, it's consuming me, staying on top of this. And she said, stay on him. Stay at it. It's worth it. Oh, that was good advice. That was good advice. And I would share the same with you when it comes to the authority that you have been given to be correcting and instructing your children. Yes, it may be consuming, but listen, you stay on them. You stay at it because it's worth it. I want to close by saying it's easy to get it wrong. It's easy to get it wrong. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get prideful. It's easy to listen to all the wrong voices. But you stay at it. And you stay on them. And you remember that God has called you to be delegates, but then he has fully equipped you for the work. He has fully equipped you for the job. He has given you his word. He has given you his spirit. He has given you grace. Grace. So that you can stay on him and stay at it. I want to close with our last point. Our last point is, as God's agent, we stand in continual need of grace 
and strength and wisdom and hope which only Jesus Christ can provide. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God, the task of being an agent for your authority is, is an overwhelming thought. But I pray that you will help these women have your thoughts about it, that you will fill them with the mind of Christ, that you will let them see your grace and your power and your strength and your wisdom every day as they go about parenting their children. I pray that you will help them show their children that it is a delight to live under the authority of a God as glorious as you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen.